I've had three and four trucks that they tell me is on the way and the driver just quits and walks off and leaves a truck in Miami full of all of my products. As South Florida businesses recover from last year's pandemic restrictions, some restaurants are still experiencing staff shortages and supply disruptions. The fallout has some diners boiling and owners wondering whether the heat is enough to keep them out of the kitchen. From Florida Atlantic University's Boca Raton campus, I'm Bria Smith. And I'm Jamie Allen with South Florida Journal for the week of December 3rd, 2021. Also this week, here at South Florida Journal, we're proud of alumni Max Maldonado, Corey Rose, and Elliot Rodriguez. We'll be checking in to see how all three are doing in their journalistic pursuits away from FAU this semester. So New York is very, you know, it's very fast paced. There's always something happening because this is like really the root of the entire world in terms of politics, in terms of business. We'll have these stories and more on this week's South Florida Journal. But first, from Boca Raton, Carrie Zebel as some of the other stories making South Florida headlines this week. Visitors to Fort Lauderdale's beach could soon find their destination easier to reach. The city is in talks with one of Elon Musk's companies to construct twin tunnels to reduce traffic. City commissioners approved the concept in October. The project known as the Los Olas Loop would allow riders to shuttle through underground tunnels in about two minutes in a self-driven Tesla car. While some officials are excited about the plan, it's unclear how the city will pay for it. Zachary Weinberger has details. It all started with Musk on Twitter addressing Miami's traffic, saying that tunnels his The Boring Company makes would do the trick. Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trantales replied showing his interest. He's all in with the project and its potential benefits. And it would be 2.1 miles, uh, and it would completely eliminate any uh, need to travel down um, these very narrow and often crowded streets, especially during weekends, holidays, and special events. The expectation is to have these tunnels in more locations across the city, like Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. However, cost might be a hurdle for the plan. City Commissioner Stephen Glassman says funding could come from Broward County's one-cent sales tax, getting federal money, or having the state involved. I think the state also needs to be, uh, you know, willing to be a partner in this because this would be the first of its kind project in the entire state. Officials haven't finalized plans for construction or funding, though they've discussed a $5 fee for using the tunnel. For South Florida Journal, I'm Zachary Weinberger. While Florida Atlantic University football is wrapping up a disappointing year, the entire FAU athletic program received some exciting news late last month. FAU sports will transition to the American Athletic Conference, or AAC, in 2023. The university is certain to increase their revenues, though it is unclear how the school will use the extra funds. For more on the story, here's Eston Parker III. FAU currently receives about $500,000 per year for being a member of Conference USA. However, FAU's AAC move will likely see them receive about five times more. FAU sports management professor Sparrow Mahalis shared his thoughts on the benefits of the conference move. The most obvious would be the, uh, the TV revenues are going to be significantly uh, different from what we're used to with Conference USA. FAU Athletics Director Brian White feels that the move will help the university beyond just athletics. We're um, affiliating ourselves with better and better academic universities. That's, that's something we're, we're very excited about. It is still uncertain how the larger budget of the future will be utilized and affect the university as a whole. For South Florida Journal, I'm Eston Parker III. 
West Palm Beach plans to invest $13 million to revamp Broadway. The city is aiming to eliminate medians, widen sidewalks, and add new lighting to the area to make it safer for pedestrians. Broadway is listed as a high-crash corridor, and proponents of the expansion believe that this will enhance safety and reduce accidents involving bicyclists and pedestrians. Some business owners believe the city's plan will introduce more diversity to the area, while others would prefer even more to be done to make the road more inviting for customers. According to city records, the approval could take up to five years and will be funded through sales taxes from the Palm Beach Transportation Planning Agency and the Florida Department of Transportation. Fort Lauderdale residents could see changes in their skyline. City leaders are finalizing a new lease for the Bahia Mar Marina and Resort. Brandon Feehan has the story. The publicly owned land was once valued at $182 million but city commissioners are now seeking an updated appraisal, which could take three to four months. Developer Jimmy Tate is in charge of the land for the next 41 years. Tate plans to build a luxury motel, condos, a marina village, and waterfront restaurants on the 38-acre waterfront under a new 100-year lease. At a city commission planning workshop on Monday, resident Barbie Pearson argued against the proposal, fearing it would impact boat shows at the marina. I'm very concerned about what may happen. We can't afford to lose the boat show to West Palm Beach or wherever. They are the economic engine of our local economy that produces so much revenue. Longtime Fort Lauderdale resident Jerry Jordan also voiced his concerns on the expanding waterfront property. It's our 39 acres. We've been anticipating that we're going to get it back in so many years, give it to our kids, our grandchildren, and enjoy it. Until a final appraisal is approved, the plans to upgrade Bahia Mar Marina and Resort are still up in the air. For South Florida Journal, I'm Brandon Fian. Those were some of the stories making South Florida headlines this week. From Boca Raton, I'm Carrie Zebel. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Bria Smith. And I'm Jamie Allen. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at SoFloJournal. Just ahead, here at South Florida Journal, we're proud of alumni Max Maldonado, Corey Rose, and Elliot Rodriguez. We'll be checking in to see how all three are doing in their journalistic pursuits away from FAU this semester. But first, South Florida diners may be noticing a scarcity of restaurant staff to help them even as they see skyrocketing prices for favorite menu items. Since the pandemic, workers have been in short supply throughout the service industry. Many employers are struggling to fill vacancies and keep customers satisfied. South Florida Journal's Alexa Kozlinski has been covering the story. This week, she sat down with Max Gritz and told him about one local restaurant's experiences with the staff shortage. Thank you for joining us, Alexa. Thank you for having me. So... How has the pandemic been affecting the restaurant industry? Well, according to the National Restaurant Association, restaurant industry sales in 2020 are down $240 billion from the expected levels. Restaurant industry employees were down about $3.1 million from the expected levels at the end of 2020. So because of this, both the sales and restaurant employee numbers are going down. Wow, that's a very big difference. What are the possible reasons this is happening in South Florida? 
Well, of course, we have a pandemic going on right now, and that honestly just affects the restaurant capacity. You know, you just never know who's going to be coming in, who's going to be coming out, and if you're going to fill all of your seats and get the money that you need to keep open. And we also have a truck driver shortage right now, as well as a rise in food prices, and they both go hand in hand with one another. And Jeff Lubkamin, the senior vice president for the Florida Lodging Association, he highlights the value of service employees in order to help struggling restaurants. It's incumbent upon this industry to treat our people well, treat them and pay them professionally, and provide them a, a positive and satisfying work environment. According to Lubkman, the National Restaurant Association believes that the top three reasons there's a staffing shortage are due to the fear of COVID, enhanced benefits from the government, and overall lifestyle changes. So it's very important to make sure that these employees are treated well. And how are restaurant owners and managers coping with this situation? Well, given the circumstances, it's more important than ever for these managers to keep their customers and staff happy. And a lot of places are having incentives to work, whether that may be a check if you get someone hired or even little contests like you sell the most bottles of wine and you can win a bottle for yourself or maybe the manager will buy you dinner. And to see the challenges facing local restaurants, I visited Andy's Live Fire Grill and Bar in Fort Lauderdale and Allison Remondelli, the general manager for Andy's Live Fire Grill and Bar, says that deliveries are her biggest issue. I've seen managers driving, district managers driving the work trucks. I've had three and four trucks that they tell me is on the way and the driver just quits and walks off and leaves a truck in Miami full of all of my product. Um, drive, delivery has got to be the biggest hurdle at this point. Remondelli says that she has to be her own delivery driver at times, and this leads to a lack of product within the restaurants as well as overall stress. Well, now we know how this affects the upper level of the restaurant industry. But what about employees who are doing twice the work to cope with the missing employees? Well, employees who are pre-COVID can definitely tell the difference post-COVID within the same restaurant. And they can definitely see the changes within uh, how much they're making, whether that could be more um, because they don't have to share their money with as many people, or they could be making less money because so many things are going wrong, and that just leads to an overall stress. Leah Richards, a bartender at Andy's Live Fire Grill and Bar, says that the lack of staff has led to a reduction in hours. We can't do it on Sundays because we don't have the kitchen staff to do it, and you can't make those guys work any more than they're already working. Every single person in the kitchen is in overtime every single week. All of the labor has now fallen upon a small amount of the staff, and this may burn out the employees. We've also been hearing about staffing shortages in various parts of the supply chain, leading to shortages of food and higher menu prices. What have you learned about this? Well, with fewer truck drivers, food and beverage distributors are being forced to either reduce their offerings or scramble to compensate for the lack of drivers. Ryan Woodry, a representative for Red Bull North America, explains what his employees had to do in the absence of drivers. We had, for a period of maybe three or four months, when everyone kind of started back up to work at our distributor, um, a lot of the sales reps were going and picking up their orders and renting trucks because they didn't have dri enough drivers. Um, and people were ordering and they would usually get their shipment um, the next day and they were getting it two days later because the driver had too many orders and wasn't able to get to the account in one day. So he had to do a two-day like uh, trip. 
because distributors don't have enough drivers, some products are not readily available. Others can only be offered if staff can step in to provide delivery services for the same price. This also must have some impact on the prices diners see on the menu. Oh, most definitely. There has been a rise in food prices. A lot of things might just be raised by a dollar or two, and some items are even being changed to market price on the menu because the prices are constantly fluctuating. They just can't keep a certain number. And Anthony Bruno, the owner of Andy's Live Fire Grill and Bar, breaks down the increasing food prices. Some things like lobster meat went from $26 a pound to $46, right? Steaks went from like $9, $10 a pound to $15 a pound, $14 a pound. So you're seeing some prices up 30%, 40%, but the average price is about 14%. The large increase in food prices has led restaurants to take certain items off of their menu. Hopefully everything will go back to normal soon, but I suppose we'll have to wait and see what is next for the restaurant industry. Thank you again. You're very welcome. South Florida Journal's Alexa Kislinski telling us about the food and service industry employee shortage within South Florida area. You're listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Bria Smith. And I'm Jamie Allen. Remember to follow South Florida Journal on Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at SoFloJournal. From the boroughs of New York to the sunny streets of California, three FAU owls have been continuing their journalistic pursuits outside of FAU this semester. Here at South Florida Journal, we're proud of our former staff whose hard work has landed them opportunities across the country. That's right, Bria. And we're also grateful for the chance to check in on some of these FAU multimedia journalism all-stars. As a FAU football player, it has become a normalcy to see the field lined with paramedics on game day. However, the same cannot be said for high schools within Palm Beach County. The project's proponents suggest the fulfillment center will greatly benefit the people of Sunrise. David Coddington, Senior Vice President of Business Development for the Greater Fort Lauderdale Alliance, says the fulfillment center should bring in 2 to $3 million a year in taxes and create jobs. This victory for residents came weeks after commissioners vocalized support for the sale. At the meeting, several residents like 35-year-old Marilyn Hammett expressed opposition. We caught up with alums Max Maldonado and Corey Rose and current FAU broadcast student Elliot Rodriguez to see how these former SFJ owls are shaping their futures. Max Maldonado graduated from FAU's multimedia journalism program in 2020 and has begun his graduate studies at the City University of New York's Craig Newmark School of Journalism. We also checked in on Corey Rose, who began graduate journalism studies at the University of California, Berkeley, this semester. Next, we sat down with Elliot Rodriguez. He's wrapping up an internship at WLRN, the NPR station in Miami. But he'll be returning to South Florida Journal as an advanced broadcast student in January. South Florida Journal producer Aaliyah Fisher sat down with these three former SFJ reporters for an intimate look at their continuing journeys. Thanks for joining us, Aaliyah. Thanks for having me. So tell us more about what's been going on with Corey, Max, and Elliot. From my conversations with Max, Corey, and Elliot, it sounds like they're all leading fruitful lives since departing from the multimedia program here at FAU. It left me excited thinking about my future in journalism and where I could potentially take my talents. I bet you've been thinking about this a lot more since you're in advance now. 
For those who don't know, the broadcast journalism course is a prerequisite for advanced broadcast journalism offered here at FAU. One of the roles that you possess as an advanced student is to mentor the broadcast students as they report on different stories throughout the semester. I had that opportunity when I took the broadcast class in the spring to have had a few advanced students that really did help me. I was definitely one of those students that didn't like asking for help unless I absolutely needed it. I wanted to ensure that I exercised every possibility of figuring this stuff out on my own. But all I did was create more stress in addition to what I already had. Especially considering that the broadcast course was my first introduction to broadcast in general. So I quite literally had no clue what I was doing when I got presented with my first spot story. Reminiscing about my first story as a broadcast student made me wonder if those same jitters that I felt then mattered once you got to grad school. So I had the opportunity to ask just that and a series of other questions during my sit-downs with a few past advanced students and a future one. Max Baldonado graduated from FAU in 2020 and started his first semester of graduate school at CUNY this fall in New York City. He mentioned how within just a few days of moving from South Florida to New York, how he was immediately thrown into the field and told to find stories. He explained to me that New York is divided into a bunch of different boroughs, and within those boroughs are community districts that each student is assigned to. They put you in a community district for your entire time that you're at, at CUNY. So like if you're like if you want to do like really hyper local reporting and to really gain, you know, a lot of contacts within a certain area and to like really just ground yourself into the community. That one district, whichever one it may be, is all the student is allowed to report on and gather stories from. They do this for a couple reasons. One, because they want their students to establish a connection with the community and, you know, build a rapport with the members. And two, they want their students to really hone in on hyperlocal journalism. Max is assigned to Community District 9, located in the Bronx, which is described as the poorest community district with little to no funding compared to that of Brooklyn and Manhattan. And it's made up of mostly black and brown residents. With that in mind, and an hour and a half commute to and from the district, I was curious to know how Max navigated that space in order to produce good audio stories. So... I was trying to do reporting on the mobile boilers, which is these like mobile units that they bring in and it like heats up the building and everything like that. And I was doing reporting. I had gotten some sound bites from some like residents saying that it wasn't that great. And then um, went in and interviewed with the, um, with the head of the, with the head of the association there. I can't remember what the exact title was, but she, um, she heads all of the community events. And then when I was interviewing her about it, she was saying like, this is not like, this is not a big issue. Trust me. Like these mobile boilers are actually better than the original boilers that we had in our, in our um, building to begin with. And I was just like, Oh, great. So there is absolutely no story here. Um, because when I looked it up and I was like trying to see if I can maybe cover the whole fact that the boiler sucked to begin with already had been reported on. So I was just like, geez, now I have to find another story. And I was already like a week into reporting in and I had a week to turn in this audio feature. Now, what Max is describing is an obstacle that every aspiring journalist has to overcome. It isn't all the time that you're able to wrap a story from start to finish without there being some sort of issue or hiccup along the road. I mean, I myself have had stories that didn't work out all the time because of one incident or another where I was forced 
to figure something out. Like, for example, when I was taking broadcast journalism last semester with Dr. Petrick, I had a story in which I was covering the unemployment benefit system in Florida. And for some reason, I just found it so hard to find someone that was willing to talk, more so a civilian, to talk about the system and unemployment benefits because we live in a prideful country. So everybody is not comfortable admitting that they were getting financial assistance at one point or another. But it just made my story so much harder. And I was forced to figure it out, make something shake and find someone who was willing to talk to me because the story depended on it. And honestly, I feel that is what makes you a good journalist. Now, sources, the lack thereof, or even weary sources are not the only issues that an aspiring journalist is going to run into when covering a story. There are so many external factors that play a major role in how your story gets told. One of the main ones being where you're located. Each state has their own little quirks and whims about them that makes them special and stand out from other states. And that fact is not lost even when considering journalism. I spoke with Corey Rose, who graduated from FAU's Multimedia Studies program last semester. And this semester, he started graduate school at Berkeley in California. And he gave a very interesting insight on how reporting differs in the two states. People. People here are very friendly. Um, and But it's like they have they already have their friends and everything. And so it's like really hard if you're trying to find a source that is experienced a particular um, has gone through a particular experience. If you're trying to find a source that's willing to speak to that experience, a lot of times people here, they're not used to like talking to the press or talking to um, a journalist or they're not comfortable with the concept of being in print or having their stories in print. And that's kind of been interesting because in Florida, I think people were always kind of ready to talk. It was just a matter of scheduling and when, and are they gonna show up? Um, but here, I think people are a lot more careful about what they say. I guess I have this preconceived idea of what I imagine California and Californians to be like. So I found it very interesting to learn that they were more so hesitant to open up when it came to speaking on issues especially in a state where social issues are one of the driving forces for politics and press, I feel like. Being in a state that has more social programs, you really start to see that Florida does not have the infrastructure or like the organization as a state to really support all of the social needs that are going on in the state. It makes it kind of sad once you're out of the environment because you're like, you see how systems work to keep people oppressed. Um, when, you, when you're here and you see that there are social programs to sort of uplift people who live at intersections of multiple oppressions. Now back over on the East Coast, Max also mentioned some differences that he sees in reporting and New York. So New York is very, you know, it's very fast paced. There's always something happening because this is like really the root of the entire world, like in terms of politics, in terms of business. And there's always new social issues going on because you got so many people packed together. It's only like eight miles, really. Oh, like there's like millions of people packed into that. So there's always something going on. There's always a story to be told here. While in Florida, it's like really kind of spread out. Like you really have to really search for like interesting and introspective stories. 
despite being in two different states and two totally different time zones, a running theme for both Max and Corey is they mentioned how advanced broadcast journalism has helped them, especially when it comes to their graduate studies in journalism at their respected schools. They spoke about how they felt they had a one-up on some of the students there because there were some things that they were being taught during the first week of school that they already knew and learned from taking advanced. And the rest of the students, they didn't know because, you know, some either didn't have journalism backgrounds or or they didn't have a class like advanced broadcast like we do here at FAU to be able to learn these type of tricks and tips and how to make journalism fun and exciting and engaging. And that's one of the things I love most about being an advanced student now. I'm learning so much taking this class, but in addition to that, I feel like the most rewarding thing is that I'm able to mentor students that were in my same position just a semester ago, literally. I know exactly how they feel, what they must be thinking, so I'm able to offer that insight and wisdom to help them. Whilst doing so, I'm building my confidence in myself as a journalist and as a producer, alongside the help with Dr. Petrick. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with a past broadcast student, Elliot Rodriguez, who will be taking advanced broadcast journalism next semester. And he's currently an intern at WLRN, and he's a station manager at our radio. So I got to speak with him about how broadcast has helped him in terms of his internship and what he plans on applying to advance broadcast journalism when he's a student next semester. Something that you don't know unless you take a classic like Petrix is when you're out in the field is, okay, maybe let's take this person to a quiet place or maybe there's something over, it's like, a, you know, I can go indoors or maybe there's a wall that's blocking the wind and it's, you know, the best place to interview the person. So, you know, it was stuff like that. It was stuff like Petrix guidance and and um, the, the help from the advanced broadcast students like such as yourself. And it was, it was, it was great. Catching up with Max, Corey, and Elliot left me with such a sense of pride and admiration especially to be following in the footsteps of people who played such an integral role in the production of SFJ. And I have a feeling that this is only the beginning for them, and I personally cannot wait to see the other awesome things they accomplish while striving for their masters. That was Aaliyah Fisher checking in on former SFJ team members Max Maldonado, Corey Rose, and Elliot Rodriguez. You've been listening to South Florida Journal. I'm Bria Smith. And I'm Jamie Allen. South Florida Journal is a joint production of Dr. Kevin Petrick's broadcast and advanced broadcast journalism classes in FAU's School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. Hi, I'm Aaliyah Fisher. I'm Max Gritz. I'm Tyler Childress. And we are your South Florida Journal producers. Here's the rest of the crew. This is Justin Abney Thomas with Jacob Brown, Max Gritz, and Sebastian Languiday, and we are your assignment editors. Our writers are Brandon Fian, Carrie Zebel, Alex Velasquez, Jamie Allen, Tyler Childress, and me, Bria Smith. Our audio editors are Alex Velasquez, Brandon Fian, and Tyler Childress. But let's not forget our social media coordinators Alex Velasquez, Carrie Zebel, Bria Smith, and Jacob Brown. Stay connected and follow us on Instagram at SoFlow Journal. 
Thank you for tuning in and make sure to join us for the next South Florida Journal.